Let's face it, making it in the music business is never easy. What exactly do we mean by making it? Well, for most people, that means creating a financially sustaining career as an original solo artist or a member of a band playing their own original songs. And while there are many people making their living doing that, it just doesn't happen for every single person. So if you want to make a living playing music, what can you do? Welcome to the future of what? I'm your host, Portia Sabin, president of the independent record label, Kill Rock Stars. On today's episode, we talk to several people who have figured out ways to keep playing music and being creative without exactly making it as an original band. It's all coming up on The Future of What. You're listening to The Future of What. We're talking to Chris Huff. Chris, welcome to The Future of What. Hey, thank you very much. Awesome. So a full disclosure for our listeners, we went to high school together. <laughs> so, we did. <laughs> many, many, many years ago. ago. <laughs> so you you definitely are the person who stands out in my mind as like, you know, the most fully, you know, person that I was like, definitely is going to be a musician in your life. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. That's cool. I, you know, I think I, I knew... To some degree, I was I was also really, which I'm sure you remember, I was really into acting too at oh, the yeah. time. Yeah, and I actually studied that in college. That's kind of was my track for a very long time. And and during college, I worked uh, summer stock pretty much every summer, and I learned very quickly what the life of a professional actor was going to be like. You know, after college, and it was not something that really. You know, it was it was tough because it, it I, I loved it, but uh, when it came right down to it, like I think the decision for me was like, well, I'd rather be playing Hotel California in some dive bar somewhere than doing Oklahoma in like a barn in Vermont. You know, <laughs> I think that was the <laughs> I think that was that was when I looked at the lowest, you know, the, the kind of low place, you know, that I thought, you know, well, to be realistic, this is what where things could go. I think I, I was much more comfortable with that, you know, the first scenario. Yeah, I always think of Kevin Klein in that movie Soap Dish where he's playing like Hamlet in that steakhouse playhouse. It's got a flashing neon <laughs> sign. <laughs> That's funny. I'll have to see that movie again. Oh my God, so funny. Yeah. And, and you know, my my dad was an actor and, and definitely mm-hmm. I think that's something that I've thought about a lot since I'm in the music world is, you know, one of the great things about being a musician is you can do your job without having to get permission from some third party. And right. And and that's the the beauty of it. I mean, being an actor is really tough. You literally sit home until someone calls you and says, Okay, you've got a job. That's right. It's always somebody else's words. And you know, I my um my ex wife was in Les Mis for many years, but you know, doing the same show every night, I mean Les Mis was a, a strong piece of material and but even so, you doing the same material every night gets tough to do it for years, you know, or decades as some people would do it. And that's a nice thing about doing what I do now, you know, which is my bread and butter being playing covers and, you know, bars and restaurants is that I can make up the playlist. Right. You know, I have to throw in some songs that the general public likes, but I, I have control over, you know, putting in the occasional Bowie or Robin Hitchcock or, or Chris Huff song. So, yeah. you know, that's, yeah, that's a, that's, that's a good thing as far as I'm concerned. It is a good thing. I mean, so tell us, because that's why I'm, I'm having you in the show today. We're talking about 
people who are making their lives as career musicians, but without, you know, necessarily being like, okay, it's all going to be originals from my own brain. And I think right. that that is such a, a an important thing for people to understand as an option. Because I think everybody, you know, mm-hmm. when we're 14, 15, we're thinking, you know, I'm going to be staying. I'm going to be, you know, the police. Right. I'm going to write originals right. and I'm going to become a huge famous whatever. And, you know, that's how this is going to go. Play Shea Stadium. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Shea Stadium. R.I.P. <laughs> <laughs> so tell us, you know, what was your journey? How did you get to this place where you're making a living doing covers? So I started playing covers back when I lived in New York in the 90s. I moved back to New York City after college and, and, and did a lot of a lot more original music. But it was, you know, I saw people on Bleecker Street who were playing and they were playing more than I was. and that was always a big thing with me was like, I just really want to play. Like I want to, I want to be making music more nights of the week than not. And I see people out here doing this and I, you know, I want to do it too. So I did play on Bleecker street and which is not, you know, to be too punny about the whole thing, but it was, it was bleak. I, you know, I did, <laughs> I got paid like next to nothing and I would have these kind of crazy slots like a Monday at seven o'clock and but so I did I did it and it, it helped me build up a repertoire of material. Then we were on the road with my ex of Les Mis, then moved to the Philly area in two thousand four. And I knew about this area that one thing it had was a strong cover bar scene. It's kind of like a big Philly South Jersey thing. Hmm. Lots and lots of places have people just the band or the duo or solo people in the corner playing, you know, what people want to hear. So I knew it was a possibility. And once I got acclimated and moved in, I started looking around to see what kind of possibilities there were. And I, I found a booking agent, which has been, you know, a really great last part of the story, you know, yeah. for the most part. That's a big deal. It is a big deal. And while I was working a day job for three years, and then we had a baby, you know, so I was doing the day job and I was also playing three to four gigs a week. It was a lot. So that's kind of how I got my foot into the door of this scene. And then you know, in 2008, I was able to really to leave the day job because I had built up what I was doing here. You know, I had some regular every other week things and a lot of the work in this area is based in the Jersey Shore in the summertime. So I spend most of my summers, you know, driving down to the shore every day. And I play nine or 10 gigs a week often. Wow. It's a lot. Yeah, it's it's busy, but it's also, you know, there's a certain pride in it of being like a, you know, car warrior going and, (laughs) (laughs) you know, crusading my little personal rock and roll crusade to the shore. So, but I've done that for enough years now that I've, I sort of built up enough of a, a thing to leave the day job and make this my primary source of income. Awesome. Do you have uh, do you have regulars? Do you have people who come see you all the time who are like just huge fans? Yeah, I have a little like kind of Central Jersey crew that will travel to see me in different places too. So yeah, and, you know, small but devoted following. <laughs> they're, they're the best. <laughs> that's aw- that's awesome. I mean, seriously, yeah. these days it, fans are, are where it's at. I mean, you have to, every band needs fans. Every artist Absolutely. needs fans. And mm-hmm. they're the lifeblood. Yeah, they're the lifeblood, right? They're gonna mm-hmm. and they've got they've gotten me gigs that I wouldn't otherwise get because of them. Oh, that's awesome. Like one of my strongest gigs down at the shore was because of these three guys who worked at a restaurant nearby. 
and I came in and started playing all these songs that they liked. You know, they had very eclectic taste. You know, they were into Nirvana, but also the Smiths and Bowie and, you know, some Grateful Dead. Like, they were they were just, you know, into kind of a, a mishmash of stuff that I like, too. So because of their influence, I got a regular gig there. I did every Sunday there for a few summers. Wow. Just because of the, even the, when these three guys were long gone, I was still doing that gig. I still play down there every summer. So it's all about the fans. Absolutely. <laughs> no question. It's heartening to know that you can play the Smiths. You can play Nirvana. You can play some great, you can play Robin Hitchcock. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you don't just have to go and play Closing Time a thousand times. That's right. I, <laughs> I mean. That's right. And you, and you don't, actually. And, and I don't know if you've ever run into Tom Jackson. You probably have. Oh, that name is very familiar. Okay. He, he's what they call like a live music producer, or that's what he calls himself, I guess. But he's, he's basically somebody who coaches on live music performance. Mm-hmm. And I've seen him speak in different places, and I have his books, and I'm like a big devotee of his methods because they've actually made me more money. One of the things he points out is that you really don't have to play those songs all night long. And in fact, when you do, it's kind of like torturous. <laughs> You need to vary. You need to vary your set, even if you're just background music at a restaurant. You need to vary your set. That's something that I feel pretty strongly about because I've seen it work in the real world. Mm-hmm. You need to have different pressure on the audience, and you need to be doing different things. You know, it's it's okay. You know, you can throw in a couple of the songs that everybody knows, but if you spice it with a little bit of stuff that people don't know, it can sometimes make it more interesting. It depends on the circumstance, too. I'm not going to do that at, like, a wedding where everybody's dancing. I'm not just going to start playing, you know, Brenda's Iron Sledge or something. Have <laughs> everybody look at me like, what? How many weddings do you play, would you say? I mean, is that a large part of your business, or is that just sort of a sideline? It varies year to year. Some years I'll do, like, one, and some years I'll do, like, five or six. I would say it's kind of a side thing. I do more corporate events than I do weddings, I would say. Wow. And how did you get into corporate events? How did that come about? It all comes through my booking agent. That's very handy. I mean, I can really see that being lucrative. It helps. Yeah. I mean, it, I wish there were more of them, but <laughs> you know, it, it's, it's a good stuff when you can do it. I'm playing a conference out in Harrisburg in March, which I've done for a couple of years now. And yeah, those are, those are good gigs. And this is so interesting because you've mm-hmm. kind of created this really interesting niche for yourself where you get to pretty much stay close to home. Yes. And, and I do that to a degree because of my daughter, because I'm a co-parent of a 10-year-old mm-hmm. or 11-year-old, excuse me. She's 11. <laughs> I, cannot, I cannot regress her. But that's part of the reason that I keep that. But also, you know, at certain times of year, I am really on the road. It's just it's a small road, you know, right, it's, a, right. it's the same road. It's the AC expressway. And often I'll, I will drive home to my own bed because it's cheaper. And it's also, you know, even five hours of sleep in your own bed is better than, Oh yeah. You, know, <laughs> you don't have to tell me that. So, <laughs> that's right. I know you've been, you've traveled a lot. So. Yeah. Too much. So let's talk a little bit about your own music because you have written your own music. And in fact, you've put out mm-hmm. albums. Yes. Two of them on iTunes. There's a pretender Chris Huff out there, though, who made a record more recently than I did. So it's not the record about time. My records are called North Cathedral Way and Death in Texas are my records. Yes, I've done two. And I'm actually, I am working on a third slowly but surely. Oh, that's great. So you do still have the time to be creative on your own, 
hook or whatever, however you would say that. I mean, you can do your own songwriting. You can put out your own albums. Yeah. But you do have this yeah. nice lucrative career going that doesn't hinge on the classic album cycle. Like you write an album, you put it out, you tour for two years, then you write another album, you put it out. Right. You know. Right. No, I am free from that to a degree, which is nice. And when thinking about planning a musical project, you know, it has a different kind of, I guess I think more of artistic goals, you know, than I do about, you know, having a hit single, even though I think about that too. So, right. you know. But it, it's nice because it gives you a little bit more time. I think like the job that I'm in, I mean, I'm, I'm working with artists who li- literally are on, you know, if you haven't put an al- album out in two years, you got a problem because That's right. people move on to the next thing and then they're going to be less excited when you do you know, and that's and that's a hard road to be on too. I mean, people have to be realistic. <laughs> so that's like my 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 theme song on this radio program is mm-hmm. artists have to be realistic about what this job is. And I think it's really cool. I'm yeah. glad we were having you because I really I want people to understand this is totally a legit option too. This is a great way of making a living, being a career musician. That's right. But not being on that other track of you know album every two years tour. Right, it, it, and it depends on you know it fits better with my life which is good. And it also fits with my kind of personality. I mean, I I really do have this kind of compulsive need to play. And it's like good that I have a period of time during the year where I just like, I play like 10 gigs a week. It really satisfies something deep within me. And even at this time of year, you know, when I only have like three, once I get to the weekend, I can kind of like, like everything's always okay once I'm set up and I start to play. Mm -hmm. Like no matter what kind of little out of the way, joint i'm in you know everything's always okay once the music starts wow yeah it's good stuff yeah you know it's nice i think for people to know that they have options because i think original music at least around here is, can be a very bleak proposition yeah if that's all you're doing yeah and that's true and you know there's nothing guaranteed about this you know this business mm-hmm. and you can write really good songs and still not do that well because maybe That's you right. only just write okay songs or like, you know, pretty good songs, but you don't write great songs. It's so hard and it can be so heartbreaking if you've set your heart on doing, you know, X and you find that you can't actually do X and you can't let go of that with grace, you know? And I think it's interesting mm-hmm. that you've already had that experience in your life with acting because it's like, mm-hmm. oh no, I don't want that. <laughs> that is not what I want <laughs> for my life. Well, you know, and I learned that by doing it. Like, I learned it by working for $60 a week in a barn in Vermont. I mean, I, I did that for once. Well, it wasn't a barn. It was actually an old Masonic hall. Like, the, the theater <laughs> didn't even have a theater. Right. And, I mean, we, it was, you know, it was, it was a great experience. Did you come to see me there? I have a funny feeling I did, actually. <laughs> I, have a, I have a memory of you coming to see me, and I think that maybe it was there. That's very funny. But yeah, you know, it was the experience. It was going out and and doing it and seeing what it was really like and also getting to talk to some of the older actors who were doing it because I met, you know, I met people who were in their late 20s, early 30s, who this is what they did. And they went from the summer acting job to another acting job somewhere else in the country and they were just doing it year-round as best as they could. And this was their life. Yeah. So, you know, what kind, what kind of felt like summer camp and then when you think like, oh, you know, so summer camp would sort of be your life. And you really would just like live in a room with a roommate like all the time. And, like, <laughs> you know, they, I, I don't know. There were just, you know, it wasn't worth it to Oklahoma. Let's put it that way. 
Right. And that just wasn't for you. And I'm, you know, I'm so super proud of you for figuring that out because, you know, some people don't figure that out until it's too late. I always tell bands, it's like, you know, before you come to me and say, I want you to put out my record, I want you to have been on the crappiest tour in the history of tours where you slept on dirty, disgusting floors with dogs standing on you and made zero dollars and, you know, showed up at venues that had burned down the night before. And, and I want you at the end of that tour to say, that was the greatest thing I ever did. Let's do it again. Because if you can't, you don't want this job. (laughs) This isn't the job for you. That's, I, I have to agree with all of that. (laughs) Absolutely. You have to, because yeah, that's, that's what it it takes. That's what it is. Yeah. There, there was a great book I read. You might have read it too. Michael Azarod. It's a, uh, the title escapes me, but it's a book about the early 80s alternative bands. I think it's called This Band Could Be Your Life. That's it. Yes. Yeah, that's a great book. And, and that, that book opened my mind <laughs> a lot because it, it was like, wow, these bands really had a shitty time of it. Like, <laughs> you know, reading about the Minutemen and how long it took them to quit their day jobs and how they how little money they made and how there weren't weren't even any venues necessarily for them to play and it was all just striking out and trying to form their own thing i know it was it's very i think it's, it should be required reading for what you're talking about yeah that's a really good point i'm just going to tell everyone that just go read our band could be your life <laughs> and you will you will know and if you still want to do this <laughs> then you can talk right. to me <laughs> Then, we, then you can talk to me. Right, totally. Well, Chris Huff, it has been such a delight talking to you. Thank you so much. And if people want to find you, they can uh, look for your music on iTunes or do you have a website? Sort of in between websites right now, but they can always find me on Facebook. Great. Facebook.com slash Huff Rock. Awesome. And, uh, and yes, two albums on iTunes, but not, but not the one called About Time. <laughs> <laughs> you should sue that guy. <laughs> I know. I'm going after him. Yeah. Chris, thanks so much for being with us today on The Future of What. My pleasure, Portia. Choke your finger water underneath the stairs When the fortune teller caught you unaware You said nothing for your fingers, they were dry Now Now by Chris Huff. 
If you're enjoying this program, please subscribe to our show on iTunes. To find out what's coming up next, follow us on Twitter at KRSFOW. You're listening to The Future of What? We're talking to the not-its. Hey, you guys, welcome to The Future of What? Hola. Hi, Portia. Awesome. So you may be asking yourselves, why are we talking to Portia today? <laughs> what is going on? And the answer is, you know, this radio show is targeted at people who are in the music business and who want to be in the music business. We have a lot of listeners who are sort of young people, like I'm sure the three of us all were once in our teens, where we're like, I want to be a rock and roll star. And mm -hmm. you want to get in a band and play original music and become huge. Right. And then you grow up. <laughs> <laughs> or... As many people discover, you really hate sleeping on floors, on tour. There's there's so many things that can get in the way of, you know, really making it as a original rock band. Right. And so a lot of people choose to stay in the music business, but they're doing it in really creative ways. And I think you guys are one of those examples because you're you're doing something really cool and you're staying in the music business. Yeah. And so tell me, <laughs> how did you decide to start the Not It's? I would say my rock star dreams died way too late. Like it, <laughs> it took them a long time to die. And like really through my 30s, I was like, I can still do this. I had two kids, two small children. And I actually think I went through a period of mourning and depression when I realized, you yeah, know, this isn't really going to work. I can't go on tour. I have to make a gainful living. Well, to be fair, Sarah, you were in a band earlier in your career that actually did some stuff. So, you know, you, you weren't just a hopeful. You actually had some experience in the music business. So it's not that shocking that you continued. You were in a band called Velocity Girl, which I remember well. Yeah. Yeah. And so we were, we were fairly successful, you know, in hindsight. It was during the sort of indie rock bubble. And, you know, we were all in our 20s. Where labels would just give you money. Oh, and gosh, you, yeah. You yep. could actually feel like you were with your job. Exactly. And, right. Exactly. We got a monthly stipend from our advance. You know, we had an accountant and it was all very fancy. And, you know, we, we definitely enjoyed a certain level of success. And, of course, like I said, having been in my 20s, I was like, oh, this is how it is, I guess. You don't, like, still owe money for that, do you? I hear, I hear horror stories of people you know that, like, what? got these big advances. Yeah, I think we probably do, but Sub Pop is, they're, <laughs> they're menches. They're not going to, and they're also doing well, so they're not going right. to ask us for a payment for our advance. Yeah, so it took a while to find a balance between, like, yeah, my life is different now, and I have a family and, you know, I, I kind of stopped making music for a while. And I'd say that's sort of where Danny came in and sort of rallied the troops to try and... This beacon, this beacon of light yeah. comes in named Danny to save the day. It's true. It's like his music. He did. <laughs> he was very, it was very enthusiastic and very task-oriented. <laughs> you I know, like, like I don't think the rest of us would have been, like, as disciplined as he is and was to, like, say, yeah, we're practicing every week. Every week, yeah, we're making a record in three months. Let's try and get some shows. So he was really, he's our de facto manager. I would say that's a big part of, of how we were able to keep this going. And it all came out of just the fact that Sarah and the other guitar player in the band named Tom and myself, we were all just really good friends. And we were all at that age where we all started having children. And because of that, we weren't playing music anymore. And we all wanted to again, because we all had played indie rock so we're all like man it'd be really cool if we could figure out a way to do this and we just said let's give this weird thing a try and it, it ended up working out and danny you were in a ton of bands before too 
I mean, you, you've been doing yeah. this for a while as well. Yeah, tons of bands that no one would ever know. So yeah, that's like, what do you mean, Waffle Stompers? Yeah, oh, God. So yeah, <laughs> everyone has, uh, Sarah obviously has the most street cred. Michael, the current drummer, he's got the second most. He played drums. He was like the second drummer in the band Harvey Danger. Woo! Everyone had done it in the past, and so we all we all needed the excuse. Yeah, so tell me how you had this vision. I mean, this was your idea. You were like, hey, let's put together a really cool band. We get to play sort of power pop, you know, not exactly that different from, you know, what some of us have been playing for a long time, but it's for kids. Was that your vision? Yeah, I would say the core vision from the get-go was let's make music that we like to hear and that we like to play and just... Switch up the lyrics. Right. What the song's going to be about, we'll get to that later. Yeah. We'll figure that out later. I can't say I'm surprised because when I went to see you guys, you know, I did one of those mom things where like a mom friend was like, hey, come see this band with us. They're really good. And I'm always like, uh-huh. <laughs> like, great. It's music for my four-year-old. I can't wait. I was so stoked. I was like easily the most stoked person in that room when you guys started playing. I was like, oh, these are my people. This is my music. Was that like, you in the front in the mosh pit? Right. Yeah, well... Yeah, I, I think I was probably making sure my kid didn't jump out a window. <laughs> but my husband and I, we try really hard. We play nothing but old school hip hop and 80s music for him. And he's always just like, turn that noise off. Uh, <laughs> keep working on it. My yeah. kids love the you. Know, break uh, it down. You got to break it down. But it's interesting. <laughs> there is a very strong, dominant thing in the world of kids music where every kid band does say, we're music that parents will like too. Like to the point where anyone reviewing an album, they like won't even review someone's album if the if the press sheet leads off with that they're just like no it's like we're so tired of hearing this but i really do think we are just because of how we write songs like we write it as if it were the kind of song we would play in an indie rock band today just lyrically you know obviously it goes a different direction but when i listen to all the other bands around to play kids music i don't know that i can actually say that like really like that that's music that <laughs> you know you're gonna right you would play in a band today like so i, I really do think we have a better claim to that, although we don't say that because it's so played out. So, well, I I think that too. I mean, I you know I think that's why I'm talking to you guys because I was like, oh yeah, those guys are doing it right. Like that's awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Part of the reason we're able to get that kind of sound we want is we made the choice early on to be a full band, a five yes, piece. Yes. You know, yeah. Two loud guitars and drums, and the drummer. God bless him. He plays as quietly as he can, but you which know, is hard. which is really hard. <laughs> But we're still a full rock band, and I think it's hard to get that kind of sound from if you're just doing a acoustic thing or a, a smaller ensemble. You know, I don't want to disparage our compatriots because they're not, you know, sounding like a grown-up band. You know, they do their thing and they they do it really well. But yeah, so we're we're a full rock band, and the advantage is we can sound like a grown-up rock band. The disadvantage is sometimes people think it's too loud. Right. We, there there are probably I don't know I would say thirty or 40% of the shows that exist out there that we could be playing, we just can't play mm -hmm. because it's, it's just too loud and, you know, or the children are a little too young. That's always a, a factor for us too. So. Right. And that's how we weed them out. Yes. But the nice part is I feel like you guys could be like the gateway drug to other bands, you know, for some kids who are like a little bit older, Right. they could really start getting a taste for actual music because I mean, I would put you sort of in the the pop punk power power pop vein, and I mean, there are just literally hundreds of bands that I love in that genre that you could open their horizons to that kind of music. 
I would hope so. I mean, we, I definitely think we skew our demographic tends to have longer, you know, into preteens, you know, like we'll play in elementary school for fifth graders and sixth graders and they'll be into it. Right. So, yeah, I, I, you know, we keep them as long as we can. (laughs) (laughs) Right. So how often do you guys play? Like, you know, what percentage of your income is this band? So I'll answer the first part first. How often we play is it's kind of a seasonal thing with summer being the busier time. Like in the summer, we're playing two to three shows a day Whoa. if the timing works out. Oh my God. Because people have day jobs in, in the Nodditz. We all have day jobs. And so therefore, if someone's going to take a day off of work to play a show in the summer, it's nice if we can squeeze two in, you know, one at 11 a.m. and one at 2.30 p.m. Mm. And they only have to take the one day off of work rather than two days if we split those up. And so, you know, in the summer, we're playing sometimes five. I mean, we have runs in the summer where we're playing every day of the week, you know, mm-hmm. if, if not sometimes three, four or five days a week for sure. You know, and we'll go we'll go on some runs in the summer where we're like, wow, we played 13 days in a row. Yeah, I'm exhausted. But but it is cool because like, for, for example, with my day job, I sell real estate. And so that is very flexible. And if I have a concert at 11 a.m., I can be back showing somebody houses at you know, 2 p.m. easily. Right. So that's nice. It works out really well for a lot of our schedules in that department. And then as far as the income thing goes, yeah, I mean, what's really unique about our band, which is not so unique about a lot of children's musicians, a lot of children's musicians are like, hey, I need to make money doing this. This has to be my career. How can I get more shows? Blah, 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 blah. We don't even solicit shows. Like we just book ones that come our way and we get a lot of them because I think we're, you know, pretty high energy and fun, but it's barely an income producer for any of us. I mean, we get a little bit here and there from radio royalties and once or twice a year, we'll pay each other out from our shows. If we have, you know, if the bank account says, okay, do it. But, but we do this band because we think it's fun and we still get to play music. It does not really pay the bills. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think it definitely helps that, you know, every quarter we get a a nice check. I won't say exactly how much, but it's it's decent, you know, and it's not, it helps. I think I would probably do it anyway. <laughs> right. Would you, Dan? Yeah, we, we all, well, we've gone periods where we're like, oh, we haven't given each other a check for like nine months. Right. We forget. <laughs> we're having so much fun. <laughs> so, yeah. So we, that, I think that's proof that we would do it regardless because we're all good friends. None of us are dating or sleeping with each other, which is, <laughs> you know, screws any band up. Tell me about it. All of our spouses and kids get along. And what's super cool about this band and the reason why we all do it is a lot of our concert opportunities, like last year we played in India and, you know, a bunch of us took our whole families with us because when else are you going to go to India? And the last couple of years, not this past New Year's, but the two New Year's prior, we like we played at Legoland for their New Year's Eve celebration and we get to bring our families and the lodging's free oh, Wow! and they get to go to Legoland and our kids, you know, so that's the huge perk of being in this band and yeah. part of what keeps us going. Yeah. It's the sort of family oriented stuff that we do. And we are, you know, to get a little schmaltzy, we are kind of a giant family and we're sort of this merry band of kids and grownups just kind of having fun on the road. And, you know, that doesn't happen all the time, but when it does, it's, it's pretty special. One of the events we play is at this place called Seabrook, which is out on the Washington coast. And they have this event in the summer and like, they just give us a giant house that sleeps all 20 of our coffee. Wow. And we play for free. We play in exchange for a house and a, and a weekend on the beach. Like that's 
that's how much we like each other. Yeah, rules. That sounds so great. I mean, I love it because there's a lot of ways to make a living in the music industry, but it's just great to to know that you have an opportunity to do something that you love and there's other perks. Like, I mean, to me, that sounds fantastic. <laughs> I'm like, I would totally play in a band if I got yeah. to go to India and, you know, have a fabulous beach house for the weekend. Because when you have a family, like everything really changes. Your priorities change in a way that when you were 22, you just really didn't have any way of knowing. Right. right. You know, we're going to be a thing. So it's just great to hear that that's, I love that. That's so cool. <laughs> I'm impressed. Yeah, it's pretty great. And I think we all, we were lucky in that all five of us, you know, Danny was talking about the flexibility of his job. All five of us really have a weird amount of flexibility. Even one of us who works at a corporation obviously just got a boss that understands that she's got something that she does that she's passionate about and, and um, is giving back to the community. That's another thing that we kind of, we hope we're doing is giving something back to the community and connecting with our community. We talked about that before. Like that's why, yeah. because it does not pay our bills. That's the way I've always looked at it. Like to have like parents come up and be like, this is so awesome. Like that you guys do this and my kid's so stoked like that, you know, the, and the fact that we get to like play loud music and jump around and get sweaty and hopefully be lo- lose some weight in our old age. <laughs> I, you know, that's, that's what helps do it for essentially free and also like it's a community service providing this really cool thing for families to do yeah yeah no that's fantastic and you get to wear costumes which i've always been a big proponent of costumes yeah i think that's an important part of people's stage shows i really i have to say my little part of my soul died in the early 90s the whole flannel thing i was just like really really (laughs) the anti-costume, although that really in it, in and of itself was a costume when you think about it. Definitely. The long hair and the ripped jeans. It's a costume. It's just, you know, kind of worn down a little bit. Are we going to do the pink flannel? Are we going to bring we out should. the pink flannel? <laughs> it's funny, the costume thing was so obvious to us. We never even thought twice about it, did we? Like, I think it was like, yeah, what are we going to wear? We can't just stand up there. Yeah, and, uh, it was hard at first. It was a little bit like the burning shame at first, but then it kind of became our branded thing. And yeah. I, didn't, I didn't feel any burning shame. <laughs> Danny and the guys get to wear like a sort of circa 1980 Elvis Costello thing with like thin pink ties and a black shirt and skinny black pants. Yeah, yeah. And so, I don't know. Really burning shame with that? No, I'm just <laughs> burning shame being that at first, swallowing the pill of playing kids music is was right. like a whole burning shame thing that once you just started to own it and be like, this actually kind of rules, there was no more burning shame. And then you're like, hell yeah, I play kids music and it's yeah. awesome. And I played at Lollapalooza <laughs> this year in Chicago. Right. And what did your band do? You know? So, yeah, I don't know. I guess I was just so happy to be singing and playing music and having somebody else direct it <laughs> like with my, with my own stuff. Like I did two solo records after Velocity Girl. I just, I'm not a go-getter when it comes to, sort of moving a music career forward. And I was just so happy that Danny took the mantle and moved the band forward. So I'll, I stood up there proudly with my tutu yeah. and my black and white striped shirt. <laughs> and I put pigtails in for a while. I don't do that anymore. Yeah. <laughs> but that's so true. I mean, every band has that exact problem because no matter what kind of music you're playing or what audience you're trying to reach, it's like somebody in the band has to be has to have that like go get them ambition and drive or else it's not going to work. And, you know, I was a drummer and I was always the person who was like that. And it's like, it's okay if the drummer is that person, you know, you can sort of be like, fine, the drummer's going to make us do these things. 
but it's like you know when it has to if you're a solo artist forget about it it's you're you're that's asking a lot of you yeah i know a lot of people do it but I, it's not it's not my thing yeah i just yeah self promotion is so hard <laughs> right it is it is yeah that's why this industry is difficult for everybody right but yeah, so you guys are doing great because you've found a niche and you are exploiting it, as they would say, in cold economic terms. Right. Exploit the children. Yeah. <laughs> they definitely think that. But considering it's like a loving community service act for kids, it's not exactly exploitation, I don't think. Right. <laughs> There's a cool element in kids' music that's the complete opposite of someone like, say, Aerosmith. And I say Aerosmith because I actually heard them say once that they had to like keep changing their sound. Like to keep their fans, like who are getting older, like they just had to like grow with their fans. Like we, essentially, I mean, we have like our fans age out and new ones are born. <laughs> like that, there's like a constant stream of of new potential fans in the world of kids music. Speaking of opportunistic, right? right? <laughs> and I think that's what makes this area, Seattle and the greater Northwest, such a great area for this genre. There's just sort of a combination of all these different things i mean i think it's the music city and people appreciate music and the arts and people are willing you know cities and towns are willing to put money into the arts oh yeah and also the population boom i think that that i, I don't i mean i don't know if that's happening everywhere but there's a kind of boom here in seattle a population boom yeah everyone has two kids in seattle right <laughs> and it just seems to keep going and people seem to keep streaming in and i wonder if that's part of the sort of harmonic convergence of what has made this scene and yeah, young, our band so successful. There's a lot of jobs in yeah. Seattle and young, bringing in young people who are about to have kids and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. A lot of that going on. Yeah. So I don't know. We, we'll, we'll do a study on it one day, but that's just a guess right now. And that's something to be said too, which Sarah touched on it. Seattle's very unique nationwide. Like we know tons of kids musicians who live in, you know, like Omaha or wherever, you know, Austin, Texas, or whatever it might be. And they're always like, how do we get more shows in Seattle? Like every little suburb town around Seattle has a summer music series where they have arts money, you know, in the budget to pay bands, you know, what it takes to get them out for an hour-long show. And so there, that's why we're playing five days a week in the summer. I think you're right. And we're playing them all, most of them yeah. locally, you know, yeah. so it's, it's pretty unique in that sense. It's interesting, though, because I mean, you would think that Omaha might not have a lot going on, but even cities like Austin and San Francisco and Boston, I, you know, they don't seem to have the same enthusiasm for the genre that we do. So I, that's interesting. I'm not, I can't explain that. Well, I think it's interesting. I think you're right that there's more of a, an interest in the arts, but I also think demographically, I mean, I think probably 90% of the parents in Seattle and Portland are former band members who had to like right, exactly. grow up and get a real job. Right. So now they're just really stoked. They're just like, oh, yay, kids music. <laughs> right. Into a concert. I might enjoy it as well. Yep, exactly. Well, Sarah Shannon and Danny Adamson are two of the members of the Not It's. And you guys, thank you so much for joining me today on The Future of What. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. What?
That was Dance With Me by The Not It's. You're listening to The Future of What? We're talking to The Elegant Two. Chris and Phil, welcome to The Future of What? Hello. Thank you. Hello. So I wanted to talk to you guys today because you do a lot of interesting stuff. And one of the things we like to do on this show is highlight the things that other people are doing that are really interesting that are kind of alternatives for people who want to get into the music business. You know, I think everybody, I think all of us wanted to be in bands, you know, since we were little and, mm-hmm. you know, that's sort of the dream. Like, oh, I want to just play in an original rock band and, you know, we're going to make a million dollars and we're going to grow up and we're going to be, you know, R.E.M. or whatever. And then when that doesn't work <laughs> out, <laughs> what are the alternatives? And it turns out a lot of people have some really cool things that they're doing. So I want to talk to you guys because you do a lot of really neat stuff. Yeah, you just described exactly, I think, what Phil and I both signed up for in the beginning. We both just, you know, were kids that loved to play in bands, and and we did that, and we joined bands in high school, and then now Phil started actually playing, I think, with his father when he was like 13, and I... Uh, 11, bro, 11. 11, 11. So, professionally, Come so... On. I didn't start that young, but we, we, yeah, we played in bands for, for many, many years and toured and. Yeah. Then we hooked up in New York around 94 and we got together. Cool. So now what do you guys, I mean, you describe yourself as a music production team, but you do a lot of stuff. So do you want to explain to people what exactly it is that you do? Sure. We evolved into kind of what we do. Like I said, we came from this live band situation and we had both kind of burned out touring on the road and. It was sort of at the dawn of a lot of affordable home recording before the mid nineties, you know, it was just hard to, you had to go to, you still had to go to a big studio to, to get in and, and record stuff. But around that time period, you were able to start actually just getting a, you know, a computer and recording gear. And we started doing remixes kind of at the very beginning. Uh, Phil had a connection with uh, this place, daddy's house, which was at the time he, it was puff daddy at the time. And and we were getting remix work, demoing ideas, and and we started off in that kind of remix world, and that evolved into production work, and we started mixing and producing bands on the Lower East Side. So it went from the remixes into the production work, and we loved that. We loved we loved working as a team, as as producers, working with other artists, and that was really fun. And then, you know, and then we, that whole thing, we were recording just tons of music, Phil and I just sampling and creating beats and doing stuff. And that turned into some commercial work that went out and it, which was also kind of fun and easy. And we were, that kind of got us into film and TV. And then it was from there, uh, where we are now, where we finally eventually landed was mostly in, in the world of TV working with a lot of comedy people, which sort of came at a, from a different angle because it didn't evolve out of this commercial stuff we were doing. It really evolved out of just who we were hanging out with, people we were partying with. And yeah, just yeah, kind of hanging there, out. With. Also, there was that time back then when like the comedy world and the rock world were kind of colliding, you know, Dimitri Martin and, and, and John Benjamin and this like alt comedy scene. Yeah, Tinkle. Like bands. Yeah. That that was that Tinkle stuff that was going with David Cross and Todd Berry and, yeah, and yeah, uh, John Benjamin. And we were just hanging out in that world. And then out of that world, uh, you know, 
was Lauren Bouchard, the creator of Bob's Burgers, and Dimitri Martin, who we did his two seasons of that of his important things show, and Michael and Michael have issues, and and just kind of snowballed into that stuff, and it's still kind of all the same thing. It's it's Bill and I hanging out, whether we're in the room together or whether we work remotely. It's still playing around with beats and sounds and production stuff and writing music together. So for a show like Bob's Burgers, what do you guys, like, how do you work on that show? Like, what's your role? At this point, we've been doing it for several years now, and it's as fun as you can possibly imagine <laughs> the, doing the music is. It's it, it couldn't be any more fun. And, and the people we work for there are, all those people are incredible. And Lauren, the creator, is, a, is a, not only is he amazing to take direction from, but he's also a great composer. And so, you know, we, we, we get a call and we sit and we watch the episode online. Those guys are in L.A. And, and so we watch it and we talk about it. And as we go through it, we make little notes. And, you know, like I said, at this point, there's a lot of things about it that are we kind of know, you know, we know we're going to do this here. These are the sounds we use. And this is kind of how we structured, sort of how we were going to do it. But one of the most fun things about that show is, if you if you see the show, is there are times where we do get to explore completely new ideas, and usually in the end credit, or or sometimes there's a there's a montage or a fantasy moment, and we just kind of spitball ideas and and come up with stuff and try things out, and it's just a lot of fun. So you guys do the in, sort of the incidental music on Bob's Burgers, but not like the big musical numbers. There's four total composers, there's, and we evenly split the episodes up. So we'll do an episode, and then the other team, which is Lauren, the creator of the show, and John Dylan Keith. So they're the other team that work on the show. So you'll always see our episodes, we'll say Elegant 2 at the end of the episode. But the shows that we work on, 90% of it we do. Obviously, the theme song was written before we, we joined them on the second season so the, all that's our, Lauren wrote the theme song. And there's a, sometimes John Dylan Keith, there's some things that he does in ours, or sometimes they might use a, a little thing here or there in one of theirs. But for the, for the most part, we do our episode and they do their episode. Sometimes other things happen. We, uh, there's a, a really talented guy, Tim Dacey, who, who supplied some music. And sometimes they bring in somebody to do something, you know, like a, a rap tune or something. So but when you see an episode that with our name on it, generally that a lot, most of the music is stuff, something we've created. That's actually really interesting if you think about it, because that means that there's like two separate music production teams working on separate episodes. And yet I've never heard anyone complain like, wow, you really, you know, that Bob's Burgers, that's not very uniform. Like it sounds really different from episode to episode, you know? Well, that that's Lauren. I think he picked working with us because I think our sensibilities are close to what he likes and we certainly all mesh really well together but so he we we're already starting somewhat on on similar ground but just to further that a little bit you know yeah he he, he really he, kind of like directs us yeah he came to us and said you know I really like you guys and I don't want things too perfect on this show and you know nothing should be really too good we're like you came to the right guys <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, there's a lot of rough edges on stuff. And I mean, that's that's kind of what makes that the music on that show so much fun. And you've worked on tons of other shows, though, too. I mean, so it's, that's one aspect of of what you guys do. Do you still do production work? I mean, 
Yeah. What are your other sideline gigs? <laughs> well, production work is really more at this point. It's it's more for fun. I, I have a studio that I work out of and, and do some stuff. And so we both have projects and things we do. The shows really do, even though we split it up, we do another show as well for Disney called Walk the Prank. And doing shows, they take a lot of time. It's, it's you know, it's, it takes up a lot of space. So sometimes we have a hiatus, we have some time off and Phil works on, on projects and I work on projects and we work on projects together still producing and-, and Well, you just released the record. And I just really, last I just released a record last year. last year around this time. And Phil's been working on stuff as well for solo things. So, so yeah, we still keep busy with production work and uh, stuff like yeah. that. Did you self-release the record or? No, I put it out through Max Recordings. It's a, a little punk label out, out of Little Rock. I mean, they've evolved a little bit at this point. It's not really a little punk label. They do a lot of different things, but been around. I've been friends with them for many years. And so... Bill and I have released stuff on their label as well. And and then we also have, we're really, we can't go into the details about it, but this coming up this this year, there will be a Bob's record as well coming out that we're oh, pretty excited about. That's awesome. That'll be coming out on Sub Pop. Oh, cool. Yeah, I think what's interesting about you guys is, you know, you're from the South and clearly moving to New York was a good idea in terms of meeting people that have helped you in your careers, but also you sort of keep it real. You go back home, you have a lot of connections there too. Oh yeah, 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 for sure. That's just an interesting thing. I think when people, you know, for people who are sort of thinking about their careers and their futures, everyone always says it's who you know, you know, connections are everything. And I think that's true in every business, not just the music business. But it's also interesting, you know, sometimes I've given bands the advice, move to a smaller town. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) Which is like counterintuitive in a way. But at the same time, you know, if you're in a band in New York, I mean, I was in a band in New York in the 90s, and it's just like being a pebble in the ocean, you know, that's ridiculous, or in L.A. You're right about that. You you know, okay. like, uh, when I was touring, I, I always loved going to, like, someplace like Bozeman, Montana, or someplace, because it was just so much more fun than playing a large city. People were just so into it, and and it was exciting. And then, and not on, on top of that, you just bands are able to in a smaller place sometimes i know this from living in arkansas and then moving to new york it's just a little bit easier to function in a small town and and get out and play and yeah easier to function but i mean i think i think new york like the opportunities that 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 we've had there from playing with uh, you know ray davies and john kale and yoko ono to you know doing you know the the beacon theater with bobs and you know sold out show recording in Daddy's studio for free because he just you know it's just like there were so many moments there and opportunities that couldn't have happened anywhere else in the world for us and me at least it kind of snowballed and you know the more people you knew the, the more connections you made you know the more opportunities and it and it's such a big place, but it's also kind of a small community of people that are that are the movers and shakers. And I guess I'm just thinking about like a small band starting out. You know, sometimes it's better to be the the bigger fish in the smaller pond to get a little bit more attention. Because you didn't show up in New York with nothing, you know. No, uh, uh-uh, no, I was definitely, right, yeah. uh, I was definitely blown away. I had confidence. I'd already been signed to a major label and put a record out and. And had done a lot of and played New York and done a lot of stuff. So when I got to New York, 
I had confidence, but then when I got there, I was like, oh, playing New York and actually living in New York are very different. Like, <laughs> it was like, holy cow, there's, there's really a lot going on. And, and I started working. My very first job was the knitting factory when it was on Houston. And then I moved with it to Leonard Street in Tribeca. This is all 90s stuff. But that was really great for me because I think it, it, I got to settle in and I was booking bands and I was kind of like got a crash course on the scene and my Southern sensibilities got had to get a little, they got banged around a little bit. And, but all of it was, it ended up being all very good for me and helping me in the end. And you probably met a ton of people booking at the Knitting Factory. Oh my gosh. Yeah, it was, it was, it, it really, I mean, that's how I joined Skeleton Key, who got signed as well to uh, not, didn't take very long for all that to happen, but none of that would have happened if it hadn't been for working at the Knitting Factory and meeting all those people. That, that was sort of an amazing experience. Yeah, I, I think like for young people moving there, there to try to get a job or, or to break into the business, I think it's a great thing to go there. And at least try because it's so alive. It's really different than a lot of other cities. And you're around with so many people that are so creative. It drove me at least to truly like up my game, just being there and seeing so much creativity. Yeah. I think young people should go anywhere where they think they're going to be inspired. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. I think that's what it's about. Well, on that note, Chris Maxwell and Phil Hernandez are the music production team of The Elegant Two. Guys, thanks so much for being with us today on The Future of What? No, thank you. You're it was welcome. Great. Thanks for having thanks us. Of course, Chef. Start, stop, and start. Stupid acting smart. Flying with the flicks. You say it's just for kicks. You'll be victim of your own dirty tricks you got yourself to tease and displease door swinging wide you walked into hide looking at your feet failures complete saw you and me on the TV Frozen in fear Every time you appear I'm not surprised at all And really Why should I be was Pictures of Me Live by Elliot Smith. You're listening to The Future of What? If you're enjoying this program, like us on Facebook and become a subscriber on iTunes. Hey, everyone. I'm excited to announce that Kill Rockstars has teamed up with Sean Cannon of The Guest List to produce Say Yes, an Elliot Smith podcast. Right now, check out part of Sean's interviews with Albert Hammond Jr. of The Strokes, Jessica Hoop, Larry Crane, and more, and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. 
Okay, tell me your name and what do you do? Elliot. 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 Steve. Uh, Elliot. Smith. I play music. Last week, uh, filmmaker Lance Bangs ended the show telling a story about a track from the album Either Or. And that's where we're going to start out today, that song, uh, as we talk about Elliot Smith's songwriting. Specifically, though, we're going to start with a single line. Trumpets obviously been drinking. The line that stuck out to me a lot was uh, the trumpet's obviously been drinking. Trumpet's obviously been drinking. The trumpet player who's obviously been drinking in Rose Parade. <laughs> he's up even And that's our show. The music we played today was used by permission. You heard Chris Huff, The Not It's, Elliot Smith, and of course our theme song, Mind Your Own Business by The Delta Five. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. For more info on our shows, check out our website at killrockstars.com slash the future of what. Our program was engineered by Brent Asbury at Beta Petrol and is produced by Will Watts and Anna McLean. See you next week. <laughs>